You're listening to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. Today, we'll be talking to parents about how they learned about dyslexia. They'll share their experiences with the education system and how they are working to bring about change. Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy, Literacy Podcast. Today, we have a special episode featuring parents from all over the United States. We'll hear from four parents. One thing they have in common is that they have children with dyslexia. They are courageously sharing their stories as reading science advocates working for systemic change. Our first segment features co-founder and co-chair of CoKid, a Colorado dyslexia advocacy group, Lindsay Dracos and Amy DeBroni. They'll share a tool that parents and educators can use to better understand the materials and approaches in schools and whether or not these align to reading science. Let's dive in. I am so excited to podcast today with two literacy advocates from Colorado. We have Amy and Lindsay here with us. They'll introduce themselves in just a moment. They are incredible advocates, and they developed a tool to help teachers and parents called the Literacy Dialogue Tool. So we're going to be talking a lot about that tool today um, and how they have worked for state-level advocacy. So welcome, Lindsay and Amy, to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for having us. Of course. So um, Amy, since you are right next to me on the screen, I'm going to ask that you go first. Would you mind sharing a little bit about yourself and how you came to become uh, an advocate for CoKid? And, you know, feel free to introduce yourself with your official title and anything else you want anybody to know about you who's listening. Uh, thanks for having us on, Lori and uh, Melissa. Uh, my name's Amy Dubroni, and I am a co-chair and co-founder of Colorado Kid, called CoKid. And uh, we started this work individually in our own school districts and for our own kids for many years. In fact, I have a, a sophomore in college and a rising junior in high school. And this journey really began for me two weeks into my daughter's kindergarten year where she came home and said, Mom, I'm stupid. I don't learn like the other kids learn. And that really began our journey on trying to learn why it is that um, she struggled so much to read. My son struggled so much to read and realizing, you know, looking back at my own husband's journey, how much he struggled to read. And about, I think it was about four or five years ago, a group of parents came together, Lindsay and others, and realized we were all doing so much work in our individual districts and really we needed to be advocating at the state level. And that began our our CO Kid work or co-kid work. Oh, that's so cool. I love the story. There's power in everyone working together. <laughs> Lindsay, would you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um I'm Lindsay Dracos. Um, like Amy said, um, I started advocating in my district um, in 2015. Um, we moved um, back to the U.S. from Greece, 
And um, one of the reasons, I mean, a primary reason was my oldest daughter was in third grade and struggling in school over there. And we thought we'd have um, all the answers here when we um, dropped her off in third grade. And I said to the teachers, maybe she has dyslexia. I don't know anything about that, but could you keep an eye on her and let me know what you think? And of course, um, their response was, um, oh, she's doing fine. She She's bilingual. She's probably behind for that reason. She'll kept, catch up. Um, another year and a half passed um, before we um, received an outside diagnosis of dyslexia. Um, I have three daughters. She's the oldest. Um, my middle daughter has a reading comprehension disorder. And my youngest has both dyslexia, reading comprehension, and several others. Um, oh my so, gosh, you've got a full house there. Right. And my husband, too. Um <laughs> And so I met Amy, I think, um, in 2017, um, a group of us started chatting about how we could work at the state level and really in 2018 started our advocacy. Yeah. So you all came together and formed CoKid or Colorado Kid. And I think that was your state level advocacy. That was the beginning of your state level advocacy work. But what caught our attention is the literacy dialogue tool. And I'm curious if before we jump into that tool, you could frame it a little bit. How did it come to be? Um, what was the purpose of it? When did it, you know, come into this world? <laughs> uh, any information that you think would be important for those listening to know before we dive into this really amazing tool that is, I know you've couched it as for parents, but I also think it could be for teachers who are learning about the science of reading and maybe even a new school leader who's walking into a school and thinking, huh, are these books here in this book room? Like, how do I know if like these materials that have been here for the past five years or 10 years or 15 years, <laughs> are they aligned to reading science? I'm just not quite sure. So I think there's a lot of power in this tool. And I really just love the idea of like a real accessible, practical way to approach this work. And that's what I feel like this tool is. So who, who would like to jump in and share a little bit about it? I can do that. Uh, so this tool actually comes out of a conversation at the International Dyslexia Association's annual conference in Portland, where um, I had just finished listening to Dr. Julie Washington and I was sitting down with other literacy gurus at a table and just lamenting the fact that it's so hard for parents to navigate the system without any real knowledge and how much I desperately wish I had this knowledge and other parents had this knowledge from the very beginning, how much the trajectory of our lives would have changed. And so one of the gals at the table said, you know, instead of trying to ask the question, who's doing it right, which is what the question was, maybe you need to help parents understand what they should be looking for. And that's really what got me thinking. I went back to Lindsay and the others in our group and said, we, we need something like this. And then during the pandemic, uh, Schools Cubed reached out to our group and said, "What can we, we have a little downtime right now. What can we do to support your work? And I, we said, we really need help putting together 
a, a dialogue tool, a way for parents to navigate the system. And um, that was a pandemic shutdown project that we worked pretty tirelessly on with Schools Cubed over the summer of 2020. So I'm wondering if we can take a few minutes now to walk through this tool, because I think there's so much power in parents and teachers having something that they can literally hold in their hands as they talk to their child's teacher, as they look at materials that have been in their building for a while, or even as they're looking at materials that they might be thinking about adapting. I think this is a great tool to use in that way as well. I love that you start with the instructional time, the literacy block. What does this look like? Like Just simply ask the coach or the principal or the teacher to describe the literacy block. And what I thought was powerful here is there are terms that you list, um, such as research, evidence-based, direct or explicit instruction, decodable texts, core program, and I would even add tier one program. But I think what's important is that as they're describing the literacy block, you're listening for these these keywords. And then those are all favorable keywords for science of reading or structured literacy. Then there are other keywords that you're looking for that are going to like give you a big red flag. (laughs) Those are balanced literacy, workshop model, leveled readers, shared reading, uh, Fountas and Pinnell, Lucy Calkins, units of study, Um, based on theme and interest, guided reading, running records, leveled literacy intervention, also known as LLI, centers, daily five. Um, The second section in um, the document has to do with tier one or core reading instruction. Um, Some questions to ask are, um, how many minutes is your reading block? Um, this, this is not the checklist um, sort of format, but just um, gathering information. Um, in, in Colorado, we have approved curriculum. So on, on the Colorado version, it asks specifically, um, does the curriculum come from the approved list from the Department of Education? Um, it asks about guided reading. Um, you can ask the teacher um, in your literacy block, are you using guided guided reading? Um, are you supplementing your core program with anything? Um, these are just um, general questions to kind of get at what does that block look like? Um, again, it would refer back to the the first list of you know red flag terms um, that might come out in those questions. Yeah, that's really helpful. Like, oh, okay, red flag if we're hearing, you know, guided reading. because And you actually put that as a little note. I love that. It says, note, red flag, not in alignment with the current research and science of reading. Awesome. <laughs> I, love, I love that it's right there. Um, I, I think we'll just walk through one more section. And Amy, if it's okay, would you mind walking us through the assessment questions? And um, maybe just kind of share a little bit about this part because talks about a, a good benchmark and thought it might be important to kind of frame it a bit. Yeah, absolutely. So this assessment section is really about how do we use assessment to drive instruction? So 
understanding that a good quality assessment is going to help us understand where the child is struggling and uh, give red flags to the, the teacher. And so this is questions to ask or which assessment do you use in K3? And for the Colorado version, of course, we refer back to our approved assessment list, but things to look for are Dibbles, Arcadians, and I, um, iReady is a, an assessment here in Colorado that's approved, but just FastBridge, iStation, AmesWeb, Star Early Reading. We don't really chime in on the quality of these assessments, just things to, to listen for. Uh, and then what other assessments do you use? And we put here some that are not aligned with reading science or the READ Act. And those include Font and Simpanel, um, Benchmark Assessment System, the DRA, uh, Assessments and Units of Study. And our third part here is, is how do you assess students who are below grade level and with what frequency? Uh, again, going back to the science and um, how important it is to do progress monitoring and not allow children to linger in interventions or linger in tier one instruction that's not aligned to best practice. Yeah, so it's so important. I really think it's important that you're just asking these basic questions and gathering data that and and then empowering the parents or the teacher to move from there, you know, whoever's whoever's using this. I just think, um, I mean, we hope that it's a, um, a way for parents to um, learn the language, um, to be able to, um, you know, to really have a participation in um, how their, how their school is teaching their kids to read. Um, I think that parents have played generally an important role in the conversation, elevating the conversation anyway, about reading. And um, when, when I first started this, I knew zero. So I hope that this is a way that can help parents, you know, step into that world. Language can sometimes be a moat between, you know, school and home. And I, I hope that this is a bridge. And like you said, for um, schools, principals, teachers, districts, um, I think it's a it's a pathway. Um, asking all the right questions to make sure that they are going the right direction. And, and yeah. I would chime in on that. You know, part of uh, part of this is is translating the educationese, as I call it, you know, it's a separate language that parents can't access. And when you sit in IEP meetings and other things, all these acronyms are constantly flying and all these phrases. And how do you make that understandable so that you're an active participant in your child's education? And also, I definitely agree that teachers, principals are using this tool. I've, we've heard that. And I think that's just wonderful and makes me very excited um, to to have been part of creating something that may be useful to the to the community so thank you for highlighting it Colorado has uh, some really cool things going on and I think your work is just an incredible contribution to that so thank you both for that good work we're super grateful and we're really glad that you took some time to come on today to talk about this really important tool so thank you both for being here Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. yeah thank you so much.
Our second segment features mom and advocate Lauren Taylor. She will share the story of her son's experiences in school as a dyslexic student and how she advocated for him to get what he needed. We are excited because today we are here. I am actually here today, just Melissa, with um, a mom. And, you know, as a mom myself, I am so excited to talk to another mom, especially about some important topics around reading. Um, so Lauren, Lauren is here with us today. So Lauren, can you just tell everybody a little bit about yourself, what you're here to talk about today? Um, so my name is Lauren Taylor. I am a, first off, I'm a mom, um, a wife, um, financial <laughs> analyst in corporate America. Um, <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> no big deal. Um, like, oh, that's how you know how to do this. Um, let's see here. Grew up in a family full of dyslexics. So I know what it's like to not only be a sibling, to a dyslexic, but I also know what it's like to be like a cousin to dyslexics. I know just, you know, got my child's dyslexic and dysgraphic. I, I literally help moms out because through my journey, I just knew that I didn't want anybody else being made to feel the way I felt. And so I took everything that I had known from watching my mom and my sister and their fight. I took that and just kind of kept going. And I wanted to make sure that I was able to help as many parents as possible. Just as a mom, I don't present myself as an advocate inside meetings yeah. or anywhere else or emails. I guess you are an advocate, <laughs> even if you don't want the title, but that's okay. We don't call you. You're just a mom. <laughs> um, I love when we first talked to you, Lauren, what I loved um, about the beginning of your story was, you know, your son was really young even before he started school. And you said that you had already seen some signs, right? And to me as a teacher, that was super fascinating because I'll be honest with you. I, I mean, I have a master's to be a reading specialist and I don't know that I could tell you what signs to look for. <laughs> um, so I just think it would be, if you could talk about like, what did you see? How did you, how did you know um, so early that there were, that there could possibly be something going on with your son? Like I said um, in the introduction, so my sister's dyslexic, so there's that. But the sequence of events was my son was riddled with ear infections. Unbeknownst to us, he had an allergy to the protein in cow's milk. And so we we had just essentially been feeding him his allergy. And then that, that created the um, ear infections. And so he had a, he had developed quite like in the time where he should have been learning how things sound and how to pr properly articulate words. He heard everything like he was in a fishbowl. So he had a very nasal tone. Because of that, my sister was starting to get spidey senses. And then my dyslexic aunt, who happens to be, I think like 84, she and my sister were both hovering over my son at like a very early age. They were just very guarded about him. You know, so when he turned three years old, I told his teacher at his preschool, I was like, I think he needs to go have a speech evaluation. So in this process, parents are 100% afforded the ability to contact the school districts um, directly versus mm -hmm. going through a third party, which is what 
you're typically handed in a preschool environment, like you're handed a packet and then, oh, here's the information and you can mail it. So with me being me, um, I've always been one of these, let's go to the top of the food chain type of people. So I just immediately went to the SPED coordinator within the district where we resided in. At that point, I went ahead and started the process. My my, My husband was terrified. He was like, why do we have our child in this environment? There's kids over here like that or nonverbal. There are kids over here that have can't, that can't hear. Like, what are we, what are you doing? It's just a speech. And I was like, Mm -hmm. it's just the initial evaluation. It's, it's okay. My husband came from a place where they didn't really experience special education or didn't talk about it a lot, but in our house, it had always been embedded. So it wasn't a bad word in my family. And I'm wondering too, Lauren, just to, for my own sake, so sorry. Here. Because I'm, I'm assuming your son could like still hear, right? Like you said, he could hear, mm-hmm. but it was yeah, like yeah. in a fishbowl. Yeah. So a lot of people might not think that, might not know the connection to what can happen when he is going to learn to read, right? That it's like, oh, well, mm-hmm. he can still hear. It's no big deal. Um, but, but you saw the like, what, <laughs> what might be coming okay. down. <laughs> yeah. I was able to basically, yeah, it triggered immediately. I was like, <clears throat> If his vocabulary, so that, and that takes us to the evaluation, actually, his, the evaluation came back. And so vocabulary wise, he was, you know, three years old coming in at like, you know, eight to nine year old um, with his vocabulary acquisition mm-hmm. and like all of that. So, you know, it was kind of a juxtapose. They were just like, he doesn't meet the criteria. But however, because I've been through this before with my own child. I'm going to give him an IEP because you're going to need this when you get into public school. Mm. So that was another thing that tipped me off was that she'd already tied the pieces together as well with my son. I'm like, my son is over here able to do all of these things. Yes, he's hard to understand, but he can hear. He has articulate at the time it was a speech impediment um, esque type diagnosis. Um, but, but often but, things we hear like that'll get better, like with time. Yeah, no, you know, no, like, it was never that. Don't, um, don't I did, worry. I didn't get that. <laughs> no, I didn't get that. If anything, I was the mom that was like making the appointment. So I was at the ENT like all the time. And he had so many hearing tests. It was ridiculous because mm-hmm. I knew that I had to make sure that I got that cleared out of the way. And then just uh, for teachers and the audience to understand an SLP can die a hundred percent diagnose dyslexia in a child as early as three years old, right? Because they are very familiar with this, but like how language ties into all of it. And so the SLP working with my child um, through the IEP process at like three and a half, she said, you need to go in and have his tonsils removed, his tongue tie clipped, and his adenoids removed. His tongue doesn't sit inside his mouth. So that's why he can't pronounce his words. But, and yes, he had a a tongue tie. And so we did, we had the tongue tie clipped. We had the adenoids removed. The tubes that were in didn't work. They backfired. They actually created a really bad scenario where all of the fluid built up. And did not go anywhere, so it made things worse. So mm-hmm. this kind of brings me into later with his other diagnoses, by the way. But in, so with that 
we got all that taken care of and immediately he was able to be like his you could hear him you could understand him he was just like a completely different kid like his tongue was able to touch the top of his mouth like because I had noticed when he was younger he had a really hard time getting his tongue to the top of his mouth to even form words like to form sounds we also have the benefit of having an SLP in our family and so I was always asking her questions Mm -hmm. about it And again, just from watching my sister and what she went through with her speech impediment at the same age, I spoke for her. And I didn't want that to be the case for my son because obviously he didn't have a sibling. But on the other side, my sister, her, everything was delayed because I did speak for her. So we get into this space. That was one red flag. And then the other red flags were that he knew his days of the week. He could say Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But he could not tell you this. He couldn't tell you the day at a sequence. So if it was mm-hmm. a Monday, he would say, well, we just had Saturday. We just had the weekend. And so that's like a Saturday and Sunday. So today must be a Monday. So he was literally guessing the days of the week because he didn't know that, like, if anything was out of sequence, he couldn't do it. And then there were there were just small things that people don't really understand. But if the kids can't do the sequence, like think small things like Right. Days of the week, not being able to. So uh, he knew his ABCs, but, you know, if you threw an index card at him that was not in order, he would just freeze up and right. he could not. He was like, I don't know what letter. And I'm like, how do you not know what letter that is? We, You know your alphabet. You know your letters. It goes, mommy, I don't know what that. I don't know what that is. Oh, that's it. But um, if you would put it like if you put it back in the alphabet. If I put it would, back, yes. If I put it back like, in, in sequence, he knew exactly what it was. And so that's how. Dyslexic kids go under the radar at such a young age is because they're yeah. really good at memorization. So it, it's kind of been disputed now and kind of got kicked to the curb. But it used to be a big theory that kids with dyslexia, their me- like their memory skills and how they're able to retain information is how they get under the radar. To me, it's more, well, understanding balance, literacy and level, all of that, like, and they're giving you a cue card and you have to guess, yeah, that's going to make it <laughs> kind of helps them out a little bit more. Right. But, um, no, so yeah, I would ask him, I'm like, can you at least write your name? And mind you, I was at home being a good mom with the handwriting paper, uh, doing my flashcards, doing all the things that they tell you to do with your child. Mm-hmm. He has a librarian as a grandmother. Um, so he had a whole library of books he was read to all the time. So I can just go ahead and stop out all those myths. Um, right. <laughs> I mean, he has every book you can think of. So we had all of that going and we get into the pre-K setting and it's like it just flipped. Everything that he knew at home, once he got into that setting, completely went away. And he no longer knew how to write his name or like what order the letters needed to go in. He started right. displaying a um, defiant type behavior you know they kept trying to pivot and say things like oh well he needs to stay away from this person and he needs to do this and this this to me it was screaming my child's trying to communicate something to you and I did say that in his pre-k IEP meeting where the SLP decided that she was going to intervene on behalf of my son because I didn't know so the sped director came in and she was like you have no idea what this child is dealing with and she's so she kind of went sideways for me and showed me how to fight for him. But at that <laughs> point, after that meeting, you know, her and I spoke in email and she said, you know, when you get because I know you're moving. So when you move, 
when you get into kindergarten, you're going to have a really, really hard time. And you need to make sure you have all this paperwork, every bit of paperwork I'm sending you, you need to take with you. They have to have it. I was like, okay, within that paperwork, my pre-K child, so this is also for teachers to understand, they were able to identify that my child's weaknesses were phonological processing, phonological awareness, um, written expression. He had all the red flags inside his pre-K paperwork. Mm-hmm. So that tells you that, you know, that should let at least teachers understand that an SLP is literally our kid's best friend at an early age because they can diagnose these things quickly because they can take and tie. This is the age. They may have the vocabulary, but why can't they do the output? So why can't they connect? I always say connect from their head to paper or, you know, like they can't get it from here to here. We just had a speech language pathologist on and I am like right there with you. I'm like, they are amazing. (laughs) uh, um, I will go, I'll go ham for an SLP. I'm like, like, you need to behave yourself and let this SLP talk, please. But I Um, I think that's like so key to, you know, everything we're talking about here. I'll just like reiterate it of how important the hearing the sounds, right? Like for the mm -hmm. students to be able to hear those sounds and for your child too to be able to make the sounds, right? He was having trouble doing that too. And like, that is going to have a huge impact when they're learning how to read. And I don't, I don't know that everybody connects that. I was very fortunate that my son's pediatrician is extremely heavy into this endeavor. And she, she screens at an early age now, back then she wasn't, Mm -hmm. but she was very, she was following it and things like that. Um, So, you know, we kind of have a saying in my circle of friends that, you know, instead of giving parents this, you know, what to expect handbook um, as it pertains to like temper tantrums or like diapers, they need a whole manual on like, okay, if your kid is in school and they're doing this, 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 then you need to do this, 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 because mm-hmm. there's no manual out there that tells a parent how to even initiate the process at the age of three years old or even right. to start that process. Like right. you just have to know. Right. Um, or to have that knowledge that you had where you're like this defiant behavior is something there's something under that, right? There's like, we need to question the what, what is it he's trying to tell us through that behavior, not just manage the behavior. Exactly. But yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of what the red flags that we, we found and just for other teachers and parents to know. So always watch for if your kids, I'm not saying that this is the cause, but this is something that I would make a red just flag, but si- yeah, the re- yeah, signs it's to like look the, for. yeah, signs to look for reoccurring ear infection, meaning like from like six months all the way up to three years old, um, tubes needing to be placed in and removed hearing tests coming back, showing that they're already showing hearing loss at an early age. And then the tongue thrust like issue or the tongue tie issue, not being able to pronounce your words properly because mm-hmm. essentially if you're not able to hear it right you're not going to be able to pronounce it right but those were the, those were early red flags and then like I said the later it got um, about four or five years old we started realizing that he couldn't recognize his ABCs out of order he didn't know his days a week out of like out of sequence so you mm-hmm. want to watch for those sequence events I mean there's just things that I've learned now that he is almost 13 years old and I'm like okay all of that's a red flag because it all <laughs> goes together and you know every parent that I've helped they're like 
that's why my child could not tie their to- their shoes. But I do have a toddler. Mm-hmm. And she's already got the pencil grip and all of the... Th- and my, my son, to this day, does not have that pencil grip. She has had that pencil grip since she was like two years old she oh, has wow. the pencil she knows how to hold her pencil she knows how to form her letters she knows how like so it's kind of crazy watching what right. in my house we call the neurotypical kid versus the neurodivergent kid because right. i'm like my daughter's over here mastering things i didn't know preschool kids could do or like toddlers could do right so that's another thing my son didn't sing his abcs until he was around three and a half mm-hmm. he didn't know the song and then my daughter knew it at two. So, yeah, things like that that you kind of just don't really right. think about. Yeah, those are those are red flags is the yeah. delayed type thing. And I think, like you said, you know, parents often hear like, well, don't stress about it. It'll come like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and so you're like, OK, I'll just I'll wait. It'll come. Um, but I, I mean, it's really like you said, you can't diagnose it from those things, but they are really good to just like keep your eye out if you see if you see them happening and like just it's like the spidey senses they start kicking in (laughs) right go with mom gut mom gut's typically the best thing to go with as you said the wait and see approach doesn't do anybody any favors right right um and i as a mom i know it's hard to just wait and see Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's not not where we like to be (laughs) so what um tell us learn about um once once your son got to school you said he had he had an iep already all of these things were flagged um what happened then like i mean that that kindergarten to second grade time is so crucial for learning how to read um so I know well, you can probably talk all day about this. I know. So what happened? We we walked in with a diagnosis from pre-K or from the SPED director who was an SLP. Uh, was um, it a diagnosis of dyslexia at that point? Um, she no. didn't use the word because in IEP verbiage, they don't they typically don't do that. that. But she, yep. inside the intake paperwork, when we went into kindergarten, um, all the red flags were there. Phonological right. processing, phonological awareness, written expression, like all of those things. And, and then furthermore, she was expressive, receptive language disorder. Like she was pinning all of those things in there. Mm-hmm. So she was essentially building an IEP like case for him. So she, she had speech on there, but she was like, these are things that need to be addressed once you get into kindergarten. Mm -hmm. So we get into kindergarten and me being a naive mom, um, I noticed that like, I, well, I didn't notice what all they did was give me 30 minutes of speech once a week. I wasn't happy with it. We had a meeting, a parent teacher conference. I was not satisfied with the responses I was getting. I was like, okay, at this point in kindergarten, he should already have mastered this, 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 this. What is going on? She's like, well, we have noticed that he, you know, he's really hard to, like, we have to redirect him a lot. We have to, like, everything was just focusing kind of on behaviors again. Everything, like, the the path was starting to go, like, lean that way again. She was like, he's, you know, he does, he just really has a hard time on carpet time. He doesn't really like to listen. He doesn't like to to write. And he's not mastering the sight words. It's really hard for him to even remember them. Like, in that meeting, I was like, I'm sorry, but those are all literally red flags for dyslexia. 
Okay, so let's set up the meeting now because I need my son screened and I want answers now because 30 minutes of speech once a week for a dyslexic kid is wholly inappropriate. Um, Lauren, what would you, oh, you probably are about to, no, you're probably about to answer this, (laughs) but I was just going to ask what, like, what would you hope to, like, if if I was a parent in your shoes in the rate, I don't even know that I would know what to ask for. Like, I, I would agree with you. I'd be like, this 30 minutes of speech is not enough, but I don't like, what do I need? What does he need? I don't know if I would know what to say <laughs> um, you, <laughs> or well, what to ask you know, for. You, you know, and again, good. Uh, that, that's another good thing parents need to know about is that um, our children come into school under ESSA and they are already covered under 504, all children. Parents do <laughs> need to understand that they do have procedural and parental safeguards as soon as they enter into the school setting. Um, all schools by law are mandated. Um, it's called child fine mandate. And so they're all supposed to screen children for these things. But unfortunately, because IDEA is guidance and local control takes over at the state level, things kind of get watered down. So you um, short answer is what you would do in the case that you're starting to notice that your child isn't like um, up to par and you're hearing all these buzzwords like, you know, I, they can't do their sight words. I can't remember. Or like You need to at that point say, OK, at this time I need to we're going to ask for the SST process to begin. And I need you to send me the parental consent to evaluate because we need to get this on the books so we can make sure that my child's supported properly. Right. So the the screening is the first thing that parents want to ask for, right? Is the, evalu- or the evaluation. They want to ask for the parental consent to evaluate. Yes. So you, you had initially actually reached out to us when we had a, um, we had a, an interview around trauma, like how reading, mm-hmm. not being able to read can cause trauma in students. And that was when we initially connected with you because you're like, yeah, uh-huh, that's my son, right? I, <laughs> as this time is going by with taking so long for the IEPs, all of this is happening. He's in school every single day not getting what he needs and struggling. And again, like you're, I, I, what I'm hearing you say is that the, you know, the behaviors become the focus, not the cause of the behaviors. I'm wondering as a parent, like what kinds of things were you seeing in terms of like those behaviors at home too? Because I mean, <laughs> but, but also how did you know, how did you know it was connected to communication? You know, these, these, well, I was thinking or, of, the, of the of reading, right? How did you know that this re- was not? Oh. oh, he's not just a defiant child, right? But it comes back to like you keep saying it, like it came back to the things he needed in school that he wasn't getting. <laughs> How um, did you know that? At home, he was a different kid, so he went from being this kid that was extremely um, hungry and for knowledge. Like he loved to learn. He loved it. He's always been like that. He went from that kid, bright eyed, like, like just excited to, um, we started seeing a pattern of, you know, he was just getting sick for days. Mm -hmm. Um, we started seeing, um, you know, he started coming home with like bloodied, like lips and like his lips were shredded to pieces and blooded like bloodied up his fingernails were shredded and they were just like bloody and dry blood um but at home he just 
went inward instead of being that kid that was always so vibrant and so happy and so like wanting to draw because drawing was his favorite thing in the world he just retreated inward and he lived inside headphones and his ipad and that's when i was like i don't understand what behavior she's seeing at school because what i'm seeing at home is that my little baby or that my baby is not the same kid it's like, right. what has happened to him? Sometimes things happen to our kids at early ages when a teacher is either defiant or does not believe that it's what's right in front of them. Um, and I'm, I advocate, most of the moms I advocate for are either current or former teachers. So please understand that. Um, but unfortunately, they aren't well-versed in dyslexia and red flags and the mental health that comes along or the comorbidities that co- come along with the um, diagnosis. Right. Um, so, you know, that's why, you know, I do, I do have a piece that I wrote out there a long time ago um, that was shared. And it's called Diagnosing Behaviors Before Dyslexia because that's mm-hmm. the tragedy of what to happens. To send that to us, too. <laughs> um, I will. Um, I, um, I, it, it, you know, it comes, it, it's, it is something that happens. Um, little boys, uh, nine times out of 10 are the children that, um, are on the receiving end of that. Um, little boys are quickest to be said, you know, place on medication. Little boys are quickest to be put on behavior, like all the, all the things you could think that you'd never want to happen to your child happen. The statistics out there for our children are not good. I've lived those statistics. I've seen those statistics play out, still playing out to this day with my best friends who are in their 40s. Um, Go with your gut. But the trauma is there. And just make sure you understand when you get this diagnosis, you need to make sure you're you're doing your due diligence on the back end with the um, the with the mental health, because that's how we lose our kids the quickest. It's not the academics, it's their mental health. So absolutely. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story. I know it's a very personal story. So we thank you for sharing that with us and hope that others can learn from you. And please share all of those great resources that you mentioned so we can share with everybody. Um, And thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me on. Our third segment features mom and educator Erica Kaufman. She's a former balanced literacy teacher who rethought her approach to teaching reading after her child was diagnosed with dyslexia. We are here today with a very special guest. We have a literacy coach and a parent of a child with dyslexia. We know that this month of October is celebrating and bringing awareness to dyslexia. We're advocating for our students, for our children and adults with dyslexia. So we want to make sure that we are advocating for all of the things that are going to help them get what they need, as well as, you know, Erica and I were just talking the betterment of all children. So (laughs) Erica Kaufman is here with us today. Erica, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for having me. This is so exciting to be here today. Thank you. Of course. Yeah. So would you start us off just by sharing a bit about yourself? I think it's really exciting that you're both a literacy coach and a parent of a child with dyslexia and also work in a district that is, you know, um, 
interesting in terms of like balanced literacy and science of reading. And I know you're going to tell us a little bit about that, Uh, but they're at like a little tipping point. So that's exciting. Yes, it's really exciting. So I am, I just finished my first year of literacy coaching. Before that, I was an intervention specialist um, for a little over 10 years. And um, coaching is like a whirlwind experience being outside the classroom. It's seen so many things in a different way. Um, And I'm really grateful for that opportunity. And I do feel like I learned a lot. Like there was a lot of things along the way that I was like, oh, I will like never do that again. Like going into a meeting without like chocolate or candy. Like I will never do that again. I'm always going to have like some snackies um, with me. Really important things. (laughs) Yeah. So things like that along the way. Um, I have four kids. We have uh, like a 22 year old, a 20 year old who are going to um, the 20 year olds going to college to be a teacher. And then we have my six and eight year old. So we uh, joke we're like a modern family. And that's... um, like our favorite show too. So we uh, love that and camping. And my husband is a teacher with dyslexia as well. So we kind of hit the whole gambit with um, everything with our family. So we always joke about that. Um, And I just finished my series certification and I'm a structured literacy um, interventionist. And I did just have my first article published in Distinct Magazine, which was really great um, because my daughter with dyslexia was featured in it with me. Um, so it was great to have her as part of that. And she was really excited to be part of that process and see like her artwork in the magazine. Um, and that was a July 22 episode or edition. That's awesome. That. We'll link it in the show notes. That's exciting. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, it's been a whirlwind, but a great one. And yeah. as we like chat and get going um, with everything, I do feel like it's important to share that I was a balanced literacy teacher. Like I had the fish lips poster and the leveled text library and every other Friday was like my running record day. And I came from a place of that. So it's all been a learning experience and embracing the science of reading and things like that. But I just always feel it's important to share with teachers that like I did it too. Um, And yeah, I'm moving forward. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's always important to share that. Those running records took so much time. I will Never forget that. That is ingrained in my memory, doing lots of running records. And then I'll never forget as a teacher being like, and now what do I do with this stuff? Yeah. And I had like every file folder with every level and all the things. So totally. Uh, Erica, I'm, um, you had mentioned that you, you know, are transitioning from balance of literacy to science of reading. Um, as a literacy coach, I'm wondering about the successes and the challenges you've encountered as you've worked through this shift. So, (laughs) yeah, so it is because it's like an important one. So I look at reading as like, I even did it today. Like my, I woke up early to have coffee before my kids woke up. And I think I can compare like that first morning cup of coffee, like when your house is quiet to like how teachers teach reading. Like it's like that coffee is like almost like a romantic experience. Like you love that (laughs) coffee. Like I look forward to that cup of coffee every day. And that's how like teachers kind of, we take pride in our reading instruction. And it's almost like that same kind of like romantic feeling. And then to realize that, wow, like I was trained in balanced literacy. That's what I taught for years. And then to realize that maybe that wasn't the best, that like wasn't the best way to do it is hard. And it like alters that cup of coffee. Then the kids like wake up and they're screaming at your house. Um, yeah. And- or it's all, yeah, that's a great way to, I think 
what's striking me is like the feeling of it all and the attachment to our, the way that we were teaching because it was so ingrained in us and the way that we were taught and then went on to actually do. That's a really great like way to say it is that it's so feeling based rather than potentially factual Mm -hmm. based. Yeah. And it, it, that's like the hardest part, I think, is because like when we're learning new things, then you see that like the faces of the kids you had in the past, like if I would have known, I would have not taught that way. And it's hard to like, I think it's just, it's just such an emotional process to go through going from like balanced literacy to science of reading. So that is definitely a challenge, but like teachers are always doing the best they can with information they have. It's, they're always making decisions with that, like to best honor the student, but it's hard when you realize that maybe that information wasn't the best that you had at the time. So I think that is like the biggest challenge. Um, in regards to moving from like balanced literacy to the science of reading, it's just that emotional piece for teachers. And I felt yeah. it too going through this. I was like, oh, like so many sleepless nights just thinking about that. I know that resonates with me too, is just picturing your students' faces and thinking, oh my gosh, I, I wish I had known and mm-hmm. and could go back a decade ago to teach them using structured literacy, teaching with that explicit systematic instruction so that they could learn how to read and Mm -hmm. then love to learn through reading, I think is what strikes me often. Um, uh, So I know that you are in Ohio. Is there anything important happening in your state that, or or anything noteworthy that we should talk about? I like love bragging about Ohio right now. And I do want to like even brag on my district because next year or like this upcoming year, we have every single preschool to third grade teacher going through letters training. And then all of our ELA and fifth grade ELA and intervention specialists in our four or five building are getting letters trained too. So we had a pilot group go through and get units one to four. And now our whole district of teachers from like pre-K to three in those four or five ELA teachers are getting letters trained, which is like monumental like I'm, that I'm just is so amazing proud. yeah, yeah it, it really it like I like have goosebumps as I like talk about it so then our teachers who already did the one through four doing five to eight this upcoming school year and it's just like to me that is like huge huge at our whole school like elementary building will be out letters trained teachers and also in Ohio we have our house bill 436 which are dyslexia laws and we just had the Ohio dyslexia guidebook published which is to me my favorite document in the whole wide world like I just (laughs) love everything in that guidebook and I just think everybody on that committee who wrote it is like the biggest bunch of heroes I love them all because to me as like a parent I'm like those people are there for my kid. Like they wrote this big document and it's going to benefit my kid and all students. It really will benefit everybody. But I really felt like as a parent, like they have it for my kid. Like that's like, it's so exciting. So we have the guidebook and then locally, like our state support team and our ESC is amazing because they have coaching networks for literacy coaches. So I have my literacy coaching partner, Brianna and I, we go to networking to like get training on coaching and that's all science of reading focused. That's amazing. I'm wondering, can you call out a couple of things that are in the guidebook? Um, It doesn't have to be specific. It could just be like, you know, topics. Yeah. Yeah, so they have assessment type. Um, so like the 
their guidebook has a committee that's picking out assessments as well. So that is forthcoming, that list of like approved assessments. Um, so it's talking about that and it has criteria. Like they can't, like the criteria really focuses on like the phonemic awareness and the word decoding is part of the list. So that's in there. MTSS framework is in there. Um, evidence-based practice of structured literacy, all sorts of, and tiers of intervention and support. It really lays out everything in best practice in regards to science of reading and evidence-based practice. That's so exciting. I might have to it dig is. into that. I know I'm I'm working on Maryland over here. So hopefully we'll yeah. be right behind you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's very exciting, the guidebook. I love it. That's so neat. And um, I know you said that they just passed House Bill 436. Yeah. So and the you, you spoke and your husband, right? Did too? Yeah, we did. We went to the Ohio Dyslexia Gu- um, Guidebook Committee, met every month as they like worked on it. And then they had parents go or anybody really could go and speak. So my husband, Jeff and I, we went in October of 2021 to kind of share our story and give them like a keep going. We love everything you're doing. And um shout out as we went and it was it was awesome just to it was a powerful moment to be in a room of people who are all working for the same cause that you feel very passionately about and it was awesome the idea that we can do something to help that we have the solution that we know how people learn how to read that is what strikes me every single day that we we have the solution to this problem we could help people avoid feeling all of those things. And so when you said like a lot of the committee members were crying, it was making me think, well, maybe they're thinking about a niece, a nephew, a daughter, uh, a person in their life who feels, you know, a certain way. Maybe they're anxious, maybe they're depressed. And they have maybe an inkling that it's because they are struggling to read. So Mm -hmm. when you said that, it just resonated with me that there's, it's not just dyslexia it is dyslexia and a whole lot more mm-hmm. yes absolutely absolutely I, I was even, I know that this okay. hits home for you so much as especially as a parent <laughs> it does and it it's hard too because I as when I was a teacher I'd be like oh there's no way that like that math homework or that assignment could take a kid that long to do at home and now I'm like oh my gosh like homework cripples your whole evening. And so it impacts your whole family too. Like I shared, I have two older, um, my two older stepkids, even when we'll be doing homework, it will go from me and then my husband will try. And then the big kids will try to help like our whole house. And my daughter's like a sweet little girl. So it's not like she's defiant, but it's, it's hard after a work day. And I was just recently talking to another parent this summer and she, her son had, um, ADHD and ADHD, it had, it had the same impact on their family at home with homework. It was just so hard. But when I was a teacher and I wasn't living that, I had a really hard time understanding it. But now, and it's, I think it's just hard in general, if you're not living it to have that understanding of what it feels like to have like your whole home in the evening kind of chaotic because of this. Yeah. Disruptive work. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, disruptive because of like school work. So that's kind of hard. Uh, Yeah. And that's a really important too, that sometimes by living that experience, we can, we gain that perspective that we need. Mm -hmm. 
that was something my husband and I really like, it took us a long time. And we worked with an advocate too, because I can sit like all day at meetings at school for other kids. But when it is my kid, my brain is like mush, like things I thought I knew it is just like out the door. So when it comes to like dyslexia, I always ask like myself or any other teacher, like I'm think tanking with, does that child need good instruction or do they need specially designed instruction? So when at the time when we had our meetings, I just really felt that my child needed just that good, solid tier one instruction as opposed to specially designed instruction. So with her 504, that was something we included in was um, like structured literacy instruction because I felt like that's really what she needed, not specially designed instruction. And that's kind of what based our decision. And she has been happy so far. And it's really hard too as a parent because like your child is your like whole world. And it's like anything at school, I didn't want to change up because would that change impact her happiness at school? And I'm so cautious with that social emotional impact to make sure that everything I plan is that is a priority too, that her whole self loves going to school every day. And I just don't want to do anything to alter that. And I was afraid that maybe that would um, as well. That's a good point. What I'm just wondering what, when she, when she had that opportunity for testing, how did you know what her curriculum would be for that tier one opportunity? Is it because you're an educator? Is it because you're an informed parent? Like, I'm just curious. <laughs> I I do think it's a little bit of I'm an inf- like informed parent. I don't deny that. Like, I am kind of I am a privileged parent in this where I am a minority. A lot of parents are pushing for an IEP where I was kind of pushing the opposite. Um, so that's where I was just really focusing on what's our strong tier one. And her teacher was great. Like, I. I hope I don't get her in trouble for this, but on their report card, they grade for um, one part of their grade grading is level text, like on their report card. And I told talked to her teacher in the beginning of the year. I was like, "Yeah, that can that can undo all the progress by using level text." And her teacher didn't give her a level text assessment. So I was like, "Yeah, yeah. like I was like, yes, renegade teacher." But yeah, she didn't even do that because she knew like what we were working for, for all of Cora. What did, what, how did you know what curriculum they were using? Um, I asked, it was um, collaborative classroom, but the pieces of collaborative classroom that they were using was like the leveled text portions. Um, And she, her teacher did show me all of what they were using, but it was also confusing because I do know collaborative classroom has like, and I don't know that much about all of that curriculum, but I do know they have a component of that. Um, so it was confusing too when your the report card comes home and it's a level text report card. Even if you weren't using the level text portion of collaborative classroom, it was kind of, it was as a parent just confusing. Even knowing things about literacy, that was a little confusing. Got it. So she is receiving structured, explicit systematic instruction. Yes. Yes. Yeah. She was in her title, um, title one group. And then her teacher also changed what she was doing in her small group as well. Um, okay. Okay. And that's how many minutes a day would you say she was receiving when she was receiving that? Uh, 
Um, it said 30 minutes a day. And okay. that was a Wilson instruction. And she does have an Orton Gillingham tutor outside of school, which is like her tutor is like the best thing in the whole world. We love her so much. Yeah. Um, but she has that in the evenings as well. Okay. And that's every day? <laughs> Not every day, twice, I assume. No, twice a week twice for week. an hour a day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. The part that I find I struggle so much is like, you know, the privilege to have the tutor and then also the mm-hmm. school after school. Like, is it really fair to be having, and I know you have to do this and I know every parent who has to do it does it, but it, I, in our system, we are asking kids to go to school all day. And then do school after school because we're not servicing them while they're at school. It's really yeah. hard. So it hard. is because she wants to do gymnastics and all these activities, which I want her to put it, put her in. But I always prioritize tutoring first. And sometimes we can't do the extra activities because we have to prioritize tutoring, which we love her tutor and she loves going. But it's still it's like that's on top of a school day. I'm wondering about any final pieces of advice that you'd like to leave for a literacy coach, an educator in a classroom or a parent. And I'll let you choose if you'd like to choose one group or you'd like to leave general advice. Um, but just like, what is one thing that you would want them to to know or think about um, um, as they I think my, kind of bring this uh, conversation to a close? My advice, I think, would be to the parents because I've taught is like going on this journey as like a literacy coach. I've talked to so many more parents in like a different way because I'm going through it as a parent too. And for parents not to wait, like if you think something is wrong with your child's reading, go get them tested because like a school can do testing, but it's not the specific answers that you always want and need. Like I wanted to know if it was dyslexia. I wanted to know if it was ADHD and not to wait and see if things will work out or wait for a school to test. Just go and do it. Um, Because even for like my daughter, she knows she has dyslexia. And I think her knowing that really helps her because she, it's not like she's not perseverating. Like I'm stupid. It's more like I have dyslexia and this is hard. So she has that better understanding. And I think that would be my biggest one. And to for parents, you are not alone. Sometimes I think we go to soccer games and everyone's bragging on how good their kid is, but nobody wants to talk about like our kids do struggle and those conversations sometimes don't come up, but you're not alone and other parents are going through it too. And I think that's important for parents to be able to talk to each other about it. Yeah, that's really important. And that's a great analogy, everybody. It's it's easy to say all of the really good things, but the reality is that that's not life. It's like not a social right. media reel. We, and this is the real struggle. And we're all together in this. So Absolutely. thank you so much for sharing your story. I, it's so brave and so important. So thank you so much, Erica. You're absolutely. Thank you again for having me here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you to all of the parents who shared their stories with us in this powerful episode. We are so glad we could have these important conversations about dyslexia. If you'd like to learn more about dyslexia, head to our show notes for resources and keep listening to our October Dyslexia Awareness Series. Thanks for listening, literacy lovers. We release a new podcast episode every Friday. Sign up to stay connected with us at literacypodcast.com. 
We're excited to create a space for community discussion about our podcast. We want to connect with our listeners and support you in answering your questions. But we also realize there are a lot of other educators out there who have great advice and experience too. Let's keep learning together in our Melissa and Lori Love Literacy podcast Facebook group. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If the content in this episode helped you, share with a fellow educator and teacher friend. Our Literacy Lover community welcomes educators at every stage of their learning journey. We're so glad you're here to learn with us. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy podcast in this episode are not necessarily the opinions of Great Minds PBC or its employees.